previously on Popping Collars. Spoken like someone who's messed around with liturgy at a church. Because <laughs> um, then once you mess around with it a little bit, you try to offer a little variety and, hey, let's, let's do this. I like big like push like let's do the modern language version of the lord's prayer people oh god what is going on why what are you doing this isn't the real lord's prayer this is the fake one (laughs) right this isn't what jesus said Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives and thrives at the intersection of religion and pop culture. My name is Ricardo Avila. I am the rector at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in lovely Los Gatos, California. With me are my co-hosts, Greg Knight. Greg, what's going on? It's great. Uh, Just gearing up for the Easter season. Uh, You know, when you're the director of children and youth ministries at Bethesda by the sea, uh, your job during Holy Week tends to be Easter egg hunts and spring carnivals and things like that. So that's what I've been doing is dealing with bounce houses and face painters. Wow. Very nice, Greg. Way to work in your uh, location into a sentence. I, I challenge I challenge everyone else to try that. Uh, with me also is my other co-host for the evening, Liz Easton, the talk of the Midwest. Where are you, Liz? What's going on? Hey, Ricardo. Um, I'm coming to you from Omaha, Nebraska, where it's rainy and very much like the Seattle of my youth. So I've been having flashbacks all day and heading into Holy Week and kind of diverse worshiping in different congregations and uh, throughout the week and looking forward to all of that and really looking forward to Lent being over. Gotta Why say. is that? Why is that? Liz? I've had a rough one. Regular listeners of Popping Callers know that I gave up all TV and streaming video and hmm. I cheated. I, I can confess to you that I cheated on Lent when I watched the trailer for the new Mr. Rogers neighborhood movie. So, so I already YouTube wow. was on your list of things you couldn't yeah. watch. Yeah. Yeah. Because wow. I watch a lot of vegan bloggers. Oh, that's right. <laughs> oh my god! Was <laughs> I don't even want to a- ask about that now. However, I want to introduce our very special guest for the first time on our podcast, the esteemed and reverend Paul Fromberg. Paul, tell us who you are and where you are. Uh, I am Paul Fromberg, and um, I live in San Francisco, California. <laughs> and I work at a church called uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, where I'm the rector. The bouncy house sharing of Greg reminded me of the uh, – I actually saw a first communion bouncy house once. <laughs> it was like wow. a little church with a first communion sign on it. And I just want to say to Liz, who's a, a dear friend of mine, uh, that you really didn't cheat on Lent. You really cheated on Jesus. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> And uh, Ricardo, I won't say I won't say anything about Ricardo because he's new in his uh, his ministry there. So, oh wow, he's got, oh. he's got enough. <laughs> so I get cheated on Jesus. <laughs> That's right. This is episode seventy nine of Popping Collars, and if you've been listening, uh, you will realize that we haven't really touched on today's topic directly. 
possibly obliquely in the past. Our topic today is gay romance. Say it with me. Gay romance. Gay romance. Gay romance. <laughs> it's kind of hard, hard to say. I think I'm still closeted in some ways. So, gay romance. I remembered what it was like to be closeted and furtively sneak into a gay movie or check out a gay-themed book from the library or fear, desire, and shame mixed in together, thus a really potent experience. And so uh, when Call Me By Your Name came out last year, I went to see it with my husband. There I was buying movie tickets, openly gay romance. There were men and women of all ages attending as well. Uh, I was able to see it just as a film with its own merits and shortfalls, and I didn't really attach that much emotional longing to it anymore, unlike my first movies. Um, Army Hammer and the father's speech near the film's end, notwithstanding. Paul, awesome. uh, first question to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your first gay romance movie? So I am uh, <clears throat> I'm considerably older than you all. Um, so this is episode 79. I graduated from high school in 1979. And when I was in high school, um, I, I was raised in Houston, Texas, in the suburbs. And even though me and my my friends would go to what is, you know, purportedly and historically the gay neighborhood in Houston, where I was raised, even though I was like in the gay neighborhood, I didn't have a historical connection or a social connection to gayness at all. It was an invisible category of being. So I didn't know what it meant to be gay. I knew all about uh, same-sex desire. I knew what I liked, but I didn't know what the social construction of gayness was. The rep theater in Houston is called the Alley Theater. It's a great old regional theater. They do great productions. And back in the day, in the summer, they would show uh, movies, I went and I saw the movie version of John Knowles' novel, A Separate Piece, which was made 1972. And it, it, it basically was made with amateur actors who were all in the, uh, the private school where the film was made. Because I didn't actually get the social construction of gayness, when I went and saw it, I didn't, I didn't realize that I was going to see a movie which is famously known for a sort of gay subtext, which is the love between the two uh, lead characters. And I knew there was something going on. They, they were, number one, sort of semi-clothed the whole film. Uh, and two, they were best friends who had this incredibly conflicted relationship, which resulted in one of them causing the death of another one. So it, it was sort of a mix of desire and destruction, which is kind of a cornerstone for romance in a lot of ways. Um, Not romantic comedy necessarily. I mean, it's not like 16 candles it's or or like love Simon, which is the, like the gay 16 candles, but it was, it was like this tragic love story between two men. And they were sort of, you know, depicted at least as sort of contemporary with me. Uh, The, the movie I remember seeing first, and was kind of shocked by was Law of Desire by Almodovar, which came mm-hmm. out in 1987, I believe. And I was in college and I was closeted. I was closeted till I was 21, basically, except to a few people. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know I was gay until I was 15. I remember going to the movie and just being, I don't know, just shocked. It was just shocking. And in mm-hmm. that movie, it's not treated 
the plot was actually more what was going on with that movie than, oh my God, these are gay men and they are gay and they are doing gay things. It's like, <laughs> this is yeah. Antonio Banderas, hubba hubba. Who, hubba hubba. <laughs> who, is into, uh, who is into the main character who has another boyfriend and Antonio's character kills the boyfriend because he's obsessed with the, with the other guy. And it becomes this whole kind of melodramatic, hilarious and awful kind of over the top Almodovar movie. But for me, what stuck out was these men are kissing. These men are in bed. I'm trying not to look around. I knew it was a gay movie to begin with, but, uh, but at the time it was very striking. Liz and Greg, I'm curious about your experiences. Did, mm-hmm. What was your first gay romance movie and how'd that feel for you? Most of the movies that I saw that featured gay couples were really stories about AIDS. Mm. Right. You know, and so I think that that was so much of even though all of my education and social cues and everything, I knew, you know, all as by the time that I saw those movies that um, AIDS was a um, disease that anybody could get and, you know, all of that. But for the most part, the storylines that I saw, the romances were all within the context of people living with or dying from AIDS. So that's pretty striking when you think about like, that tragedy piece that you guys were talking about. So mm. like, like Philadelphia, for example, I remember speaking of Antonio Banderas, being, <laughs> um, being really moved by the love story in the context of that movie, but that that was not the reason. Um, like I watched that in my high school biology class. So I grew up in the rural South, right? So um, I don't know. Uh, homosexuality. Gay, gay didn't happen. Yeah. Gay wasn't, gay, no, gay, gay didn't happen. And if it if it did come up in conversation with like, you know, my peers or stuff like that in school, it was always a pejorative. It was always something that you would use to tease other people. As a Gen Xer, like I, I didn't feel exposed to a lot of gay culture growing up. I guess probably where seeing gay movies, and again, this is an HIV thing, uh, Angels in America – Right, which wasn't a movie necessarily, but was a miniseries that was very much structured like a movie, um, was kind of my uh, initial sort of glimpse into sort of relationship and how, you know, how relationship kind of, you know, works uh, and doesn't work. The revelation culturally and whenever it was, 7980 was... uh, uh, cable movies where you could watch things that you didn't want to go out and see in public, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is where I saw um, the movie Morris, uh, the E.M. Forrester uh, novel right. with uh, Hugh Grant um, as the more tortured homosexual fella. Um, it takes place at Oxford, so it's you know like, and it's a Merchant Ivory picture, I think. So it's like all costumes and all beautiful, you know, cinematography and agonizing gay men. But but the difference is that at the end, the not Hugh Grant character, who's I can't remember the actor's name right now, mm-hmm. uh, actually does fall in love and apparently ends up with the uh, working class guy um, who seduces him earlier in the picture. So there's a way in which it's it's I mean the intersectionality of is, of it is interesting because it's both a gay romance, but it's also a, a movie about class deconstruction, which I think is correct because I think, you know, one of the gifts of gay people is that we have the ability to deconstruct culture in creative ways. 
uh, and cause people to think about the world in new ways. I, I was listening to you and Paul specifically, like when you answered that question of like, you know, what were your early experiences? And both of you, you know, both of you, I think that we're, we're saying, you know, it, it was saying something about who I was. You know, we've been talking about representation a lot this season, especially with like Black Panther and stuff like that coming right. out recently. Right. And it's like, was it repre- was it representative of something, you know, in you? Or was it just speaking? Was it just with, a feeling or the, something? The, for me, at least, the challenge of developing gay identity is there there were when i was growing up there were no cultural uh touchstones there was no shared vocabulary about what any of this was there was no way of 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 talking about what my desire was um and for straight people that's just not the case because everything is geared towards straightness so we, as gay people, have to create our own social vocabulary to explain what our experience is. Because mm-hmm. if you're in love with your best friend in high school, and there's no category Check. for that, right? <laughs> there's no category for that, then you feel yeah. like you're just a freak. Yeah. You know, I think uh, for me, I had to kind of process movies, like hetero movies, twice. Right. I watched it and then I sort of like made the like the the cute guy in the straight romance. I sort of focused on him and watched him with fascination. It's just like you're trying to find a way in to the story. Yeah. And you don't I didn't always do that. Sometimes like, okay, good, you know, Red Butler and Scarlett O'Hara. Okay, good, you know, Dr. Zhivago and Lara. Mm. I got it, you know. But then there's a sort of a, a level of um distance that I didn't know was there until I saw these gay movies. And that's what was so shocking. Oh, this is exactly me in some way. And I didn't, there wasn't that layer of processing. Gregor or Liz, do you guys ever have to kind of process if that, if that makes sense when you've seen a, a broke back mountain or a call me by your name? I had never thought about it in that way. What I, what I would say is that like what Paul mentioned earlier about one of the gifts that gay people bring to the world is the con- deconstruction and reconstruction and creation of new narratives and new ways of seeing the world that that has a real benefit to straight people too. <laughs> you know, like there's a real right. benefit to right. the, you know, everybody on the spectrum because while I am, my sexual orientation is heterosexual um, I don't identify with straight culture a whole lot, mm-hmm. you know, and like um, most heterosexual romances are honestly not that appealing to me because they rely on gender norms that I don't feel comfortable with. So there's a there's a kind of liberation and freedom in exploring gay romances because it's a it's a new creation like. Paul said for when it comes to um, consuming media, like it's a new way of, of interacting with a story. Uh, when you initially brought up the topic, I was thinking, okay, gay romance movies. Hmm. And like, all I could think of were like Brokeback Mountain, Moonlight, Call Me By Your Name. 
Like those were the only three that sort of came to mind as even <laughs> as even potential candidates. Um, and and I was thinking like, well, what do those three movies have in common? They're all beautiful. Like they're all beautifully shot movies. And I, I suspect that that's a part of. Um, I, I may be uh, reading too much into the filmmaker's intention, but I think that's probably a part of what kind of defines a gay movie is that it's visually stunning, visually beautiful. I love the movie, uh, but I'm a cheerleader, which is a kind of a lesbian romance. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, and it's, it's a hoot, but visually it is a really distinct look and it's a very, uh, it's a really strong look. And of course, when the intimacy between the two female characters is happening, it becomes more uh, naturalistic and the rest of it is much more kind of stylized and stuff. Cause I, and I've, I've said this already in the interview, but I, I really don't think that a happy ending is the, the definition of, of romance. I actually think the opposite. I think a sad ending is the definition of a romance. Hmm. It hooks you. It makes you consider what the world is like. Mm-hmm. And, and, the and actually how, how costly it is to love. Right. Mm-hmm. Wait, <laughs> wait. <laughs> you can't have a romance where someone, where they both live or they're both okay. No, you can. I think as a category romance is, it's either romance. I mean, romantic comedy is a whole nother thing, but romance as a category always has some struggle in it. Mm-hmm. I think. Oh yeah. yeah. Of course. You don't have to die, Ricardo. People don't have to no. die. <laughs> yeah, but you said no happy ending. Like Cinderella's a romance, and there's struggle in there. True, and I guess it's a happy ending. She gets accepted <laughs> into patriarchy. Besides that, it's a great movie. <laughs> that's right. Who didn't want that? Hey, um, hey, you right, get choose so the I, fit in the end. That's that's yeah. pretty good ending. Sorry, choose yeah. the fit. Yeah. <laughs> that's that, now that's a romance. <laughs> Me and my well-fitting shoe. You see what um, I mean? <laughs> yeah, I get it. Greg, I totally want to ask you this question, and I don't know if it's uncomfortable, so whatever. But, um, like, what about all the homoerotic elements to superheroes and comic oh, stuff? Man. Or is it just because I'm gay and I see the muscles? Like, oh, yeah. that, 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 those comics are, like, for boys, right? And it's, like, all these built guys fighting each other. And what I see is, wow. But, like, if you're a straight kid, like... Are you like, what's happening there? Is something happening there? So that, oh, yeah. do you want to just talk about that now? No, I would say absolutely. There's all kinds of things that are presented to heterosexual boys that are, to, that are, that are sort of professed to be masculine that are homoerotic. I mean, professional wrestling, which I also have a love for is one of those, one of those things also. Right. <laughs> I, uh, I grew up watching, you know, Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes, you know, and they're, mostly naked most you know then <laughs> you know rolling around on a mat most of the time right all over like, each other so mm-hmm. that was a form of sort of queer media or or just kind of queer entertainment that wasn't it wasn't a threat i think to the to the heterosexual sort of norms mm-hmm. um whereas like your almodovar movie would have been a threat Right. Or like even something that's not sexualized. I mean, take something like Last Temptation of Christ, for instance, that would have been a threat. I think that media that comes at things sideways, you know, people don't really pick up on superheroes is a perfect example. Is there a way that it's a safe thing to like 
let some of those guy urges or something out by watching something that's scripted or something that's a sport. Probably because it has violence associated with it. The problem with superhero movies is that at the end of the day, you have to punch your problem in the face. And that's the only way that you're going to get around it. Um, And I think that that's a narrative that's failing us as a society. But yeah, so, so you're talking about naked men, but they're, they're violent with each other. You're talking about superheroes, you know, scantily clad, but they're violent with each other. I, I think that that, that makes it masculine or, you know, that, that makes it non-threatening. I, you know, I think that, I think that what you're talking about though, plays into our podcast very well because Jesus narratives come at these things sideways as far as healthy male relationships with each other. Funny that you say that because I, I guess I don't really think of Jesus as a sexual being at all. I think Even of him with as all sexual the guys. because he's fully human. Yeah. Right. Uh, there is a way in which, you know, especially in devotional art, the body of Jesus is very much sexualized. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of physique of Jesus on the cross doesn't look like my physique, and it doesn't look like a lot of people's physique, mm-hmm. even though it's a tortured body. So there's a way in which a kind of you know, romanticizing of the body of Jesus or sexualizing of the body of Jesus is something that the culture has done, whether or not the culture wants to admit it. And it has all to do with, you know, classical ideas of beauty and uh, platonic ideas of what uh, bodies ought to look like. And, you know, if Jesus is perfect, he has to have a perfect body. And that um, idea of, you know, like in the mystics, you see um, really sexualized spirituality, I guess, engagement with Jesus. That's, that's very sexual. I think you could even make arguments about Eucharistic theologies that, you know, rely on consummation and bodies becoming one body. So I don't think um, it's, that's edgy and all of our baggage about sexuality can, can color that in a weird way. And yet, if, you know, the the beauty of the incarnation is God's full humanity and full divinity, and I I think that that could be a really beautiful invitation. Absolutely. And I, you know, a few years ago, I started calling Jesus the boyfriend um, (laughs) instead of calling, you know, Jesus the bridegroom, because, you know, the boyfriend always, you know, brings you flowers and remembers your birthday. Um, So it's a kind of a way of of claiming the intimate friendship, which Jesus commands his followers uh, to say, this is not just a, you know, distant disembodied Lord, but this is one who is as close as my heart's desire. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and, and longs for me with the lover's heart, which makes some people uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, even me a little bit. Jesus well, no, it makes everybody uncomfortable, but the incarnation makes the incarnation is designed to make us uncomfortable to the point of conversion. So we don't just think of our bodies as meaningless, but we think of them as charged with God's spirit. It's all interesting. But um, I just realized when you said that, Paul, that I have heard like when you when you ask someone about their relationship with Jesus and they maybe give all different kinds of words to associate with who that person has been to them over the course of their life, he's been friend provocateur, you know, whatever. I've heard gay men and women both easily say lover. Yeah. And I've never heard a straight man say that, which I think that that has something to do with our baggage and our hangups. 
Right. And I just, I just wonder that where, you know, straight men and kind of heteronormativity that is toxic mm-hmm. um, gets in the way of straight men accessing this part of Jesus that gay men and straight women and I don't know about gay women can act, seem to be able to access pretty comfortably. And it's not weird. It's, I don't feel like I need to explain. Now, when I said lover, what I meant was, (laughs) I didn't feel like I don't need to do that. Uh, It's so obvious to me, but I'm just curious about how straight men might be, you know, that might be so much more difficult. But when you're talking about lover, right, you're talking about like vulnerability, you're talking about tenderness, you know, yeah, intimacy, like I'm thinking of like, um, you know, when you brought up toxic masculinity and Jesus, the image that comes to my mind is that like that rippling, you know, bulging muscled Jesus who breaks the cross, like (laughs) (laughs) shoulder blades or something. Uh, You can see that image online, but that's see like that's the thing right that's not an intimate jesus that's not a jesus that's gonna be your lover that's a jesus that's gonna kick ass you know mm-hmm. and i think that that's where that's where the toxic masculinity comes in mm-hmm. yeah seasons change quickly as they appear air gets crisp this time of year The summer moves on, the dreamer's love has to wait. The winter's chill warms the embers of a once burning flame. Give me a love, let me in your song. Give me that fire that you need a home. Give me a love, let me in your song. Thinking of the days. We've got this segment that we do called uh, Staff Picks. So if you remember the old Blockbuster video and you would come to the wall and you would see, oh, what's Ricardo picked out for me today to consume or whatever it is. That's uh, that's the idea behind this segment. So Ricardo actually has our staff pick today. So Ricardo, what is your staff pick? I will tell you. Thank you, Greg. Um, I've already mentioned it. I have to say I really like Love, Simon. Uh, and I commend it to all of you, not just the teenage girls out there um, <laughs> or the teenage girl with you. I don't know. Um, it was sweet. It was smart. The music is wonderful. And um, I don't know. It was strange to have a, a pretty safe gay movie. You know, there, there wasn't really a lot of danger. <laughs> you know, maybe that stuff about someone having to die. Uh, I knew that wouldn't happen. Um, and even though I expected it to be saccharine and bland, uh, I was surprised that it was actually the tenderness and the sharpness and the wittiness and the sweetness and, and also the kind of messed upness of, of being maybe a young gay teenager in this day and age and trying to come out. And it is still hard for some people, you know, in some ways you can't say you can be in an affluent, super liberal, uh, white enclave, and where everyone's accepting of you and yet still have a problem saying a truth about yourself because you know it's different and you don't know what's going to change in your life once you say it. And I think the movie does a great job of um, of explaining that and showing that. And it really is a bit of a crossover. I mean, it, is a, it is a gay movie. It's a coming-of-age movie. 
but it's also uh, the teenagerness of it really came through for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that means, except that it didn't feel phony. I mean, granted, the main character, Simon, knows way too much about music from like the 70s. And you know how they do that with kids. They're so precocious and they know everything and they can quote Shakespeare and they're 15 years old. Well, this kid wasn't like that. A little bit, but not a lot. So I really recommend it. It's a great date movie, oddly enough. Um, I would even, I would challenge you heterosexuals out there to take your husband, (laughs) wife, boyfriend, or girlfriend on a date to see Love, Simon, and then talk about it afterwards. So that is my staff pick, Greg. Right. No, that was great. Okay. I'm I'm going to go see Love, Simon right now. (laughs) (laughs) Do it. Midnight show. Right. Midnight screening of Love Sun. That's right. Skip Rocky Horror for one night. (laughs) And that is our podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. I would like to thank my co-hosts, Greg Knight and Liz Easton, and especially our very special guest, Paul Fromberg. Thank you all for your good thoughts and good words. Thank Um, you. So As you know from listening to this podcast, you can find Popping Collars most anywhere, especially places like Facebook and Stitcher and iTunes and Greg, where else? You know this better than I do. I can't do this. Oh, and the Episcopal Cafe. We love the Episcopal Cafe because they're Episcopal and it's a cafe. What's not to like? Have a scone and tea. Um, yeah. We love Episcopal Cafe, and we know you will too. All your needs will be met, and then some. So we'll see no. you next time, everyone. And remember, keep those collars popped. Mm-hmm.